Welcome to this week's episode of Being Human. I'm here with Devin Halliday, and you are the Chief Belonging Architect at Rudiment Solutions. Did I get that right? Yeah, you did get that right. Thank you so much for, for having me here. It's, a, it's an honor to be here. Yeah, that's a mouthful, isn't it? Yeah, well, I mean, let's dive in with that. What, what on earth do we mean by Chief Belonging Architect? So when you're the founder, I guess you can create all sorts of creative titles uh, for everybody in the organization. But ultimately, uh, that, that was one that was given to me a while ago, uh, it, very informally, uh, in a different role that I was in, uh, where ultimately, as a leader of people in a technology and sales space, I had a, a track record and a history of developing teams where nobody wanted to leave, everybody wanted to stay, and they were producing amazing results. And somebody just you know, flippantly referred me referred to me as the chief belonging architect because I create this sense of, of belongingness where people really want to stay within my sphere of the organization. So I ran with it when it came time to, to run my own business. Okay. Okay. So that's, and I suppose there are, there are lots of ingredients in whatever belonging is, whatever, whatever exists to have belonging happen. So what were some of the things you discovered about what it takes to have teams have a sense of belonging? Yeah, so ultimately for me, uh, yeah, and th this shows up in, in my book, Belonging Factor, it really boiled down to understanding that there are five characteristics that I either was inherently doing or learned from others very deliberately that truly made that impact in developing a sense of belonging. And so just for context, I think it's important to maybe talk about what, what the idea of belongingness is on a, a workplace team. And that's the idea where there is trust in your leadership and in your peers. There is a environment where failing is okay because innovation is allowed, where constructive dissent is welcomed because we don't want to operate necessarily in an echo chamber and have everybody agree to row the boat you know, upriver the entire way when we could easily have a different solution. And ultimately where there is a sense of community and people can thrive together, respecting, understanding, and, and being better because of our differences, not using those differences to create or have a reason to not collaborate and work very well together. So I, my assertion is that that really falls into a leadership responsibility to create the environment where that can happen. And then it's everybody's responsibility to participate. So from the leadership standpoint, those five things that I was kind of mentioning, uh, ultimately it starts with just being authentic. And that's, that's a very overused word in, in my case. I've experienced it used in, in many environments where then nobody showed up authentically. So I ultimately think of that as knowing really what your plus and your deltas are. Uh, and being impeccable in your self-analysis so you can truly model what you're expecting. And then you have to create value alignment. And that's that second part, right? You're defining roles and behaviors within this culture. What does it look like? And how do I message regularly and consistently and then expect everybody to be able to live within this, this ecosystem, this, this culture? So that value alignment must be there and that's a responsibility of the leader. And then the, the last three are, are those that are really the tactical, the fun ones usually, the ones where you can show up and you can do some things as a leader or a team member. 
to, to really make the environment fun. And that's empowering and championing others, giving people a voice and advocating for them, particularly if it's a crazy idea that goes against the grain, but there's, there's some value in respecting what that innovation could bring, if not for the immediate outcome, but for the long term of that person on the team. Building some intellectual diversity is the other one, building this, this, this diverse group of teams, both in what you see, but in the backgrounds that they have. And then, of course, fostering collaboration and building that community. So that's taking online interaction offline. It's being human. But more importantly, it's connecting to others. So those are those, are those five broad categories. I would tell you, as a leader, for me and, and from what I've studied and put in practice, have definitely been the catalyst to creating that sense of belonging. Right. And of those five, which did you find it sort of most challenging to develop in yourself? You talked about the, the self-analysis being important. What, what did you have to work hardest on? So personally for me, early on, it was self-analysis. And okay. as I progressed in my career, it moved into the value alignment and messaging. So it, I could kind of break those into to two little chunks to dissect here. Uh, from my personal experience, I, I took over a, a sales team that I had actually been a team member of, and it was my first management role. And I had a, a relationship that was strong enough where my team was able to come tell me, hey, you need to undo what you're doing right now because you're losing us and you're going to have a mutiny on your hands. So kudos that there was the environment where they could do that. But man, was I just not doing well at assessing my own strengths and understanding my plus deltas and figuring out where I was not getting traction. So it, it took them coming to me, which was, which was phenomenal. And of course the things that needed to happen did happen as a result uh, well, of I'm that conversation. What was it? What was it that you were doing that, that was causing a problem? Well, of course uh, I was a, a brand new manager and I got promoted for a reason. So therefore my ideas must be the best and the way I did things must be the way that everybody else now has to do things. Right. It was a very, I mean, it, you talk about a classic case study in the worst way to transition into leading people. And, and I did it. <laughs> I, w- I, was, I, was, I was emulating people who I saw as successful, but I knew were doing the wrong things, but they must be the right things because they're successful. Um, I was not being authentic to myself and I didn't have a good mechanism for self-analysis. Later in my career, like I said, it became the value alignment. And ultimately for me, that what I, what I came to understand was that this was around, I messaged what the culture needed to be and I lived it myself, but then that was it. And when I say messaged, I mean, told everybody, this is the culture that we work in. And, and then I lived it myself and demonstrated it myself. And so it was a similar problem to before where I didn't have in place a good mechanism to understand that consistent messaging, looking for what are the behaviors that show up in every person on my team's work that would be exemplifying that they are in a culture of belonging, that they're living in it, that they feel it, and that they're able to to thrive in it. And really understanding what that failure failure in that mechanism was, was as simple as consistently seeking feedback for people to be part of it, and then consistently demonstrating and messaging in their role, in their specific job function, what behaviors would look like to support each other and support this culture we're building. So it became a lot less of tell and a lot more of show. Okay. Um, and so you're using the term messaging there. Like, well, actually there's two things. So first of all, I want to go back to the self-analysis. So you said you developed a, a, a means of, of self-analysis. What, um, 
yeah, what did you use that worked there that helped you be able to do that more? Yeah, so thanks for asking that. Uh, ultimately, I run through a plus delta exercise where I, I just kind of a vertical line up a sheet of paper, the left side, all of the things that I feel like are the attributes that are helping me achieve what I need to. The right side, the things that I know are my blemishes, my weak points, whether it's been through feedback with peers, uh, superiors, or from my team, or just in myself in really sitting down and analyzing where am I moving the needle. And doing that exercise regularly. So for me, it would, it's always been pretty much a once a month exercise. And then my follow-up to that, my 360 kind of element to that is going and asking my team and my peers, are you seeing from me the things that we've discussed or talked about that, that you need to see from me? Or what else can I do differently that, um, that I don't have as part of what I'm working on? And being very transparent with my team that I'm developing and working as a leader and to support them. And my, my critical mission is support of them to deliver the outcomes that we've all signed up for. So that transparency has always allowed then for that feedback to come more regularly. You still have some folks who are a little bit uh, concerned about giving candid feedback to the boss, but if you replicate this frequently, as I did, that, that barrier comes down, that guard comes down. Okay. Yeah. And, and I, yeah, I mean, that's uh, kudos to you, because I, I can't imagine there are too many people out there who once a month sit down and, and really look in the mirror and ask themselves, you know, what are my, as you say, blemishes, right? And that's, uh, that takes something. And then to go out to your team and be transparent about it. Yeah, I can see how that's, that's, that's a pretty special activity for a leader be doing, to be doing. Yeah, it's, it, there's no doubt that, that we could all probably, in, including myself, do better at self-analysis. Um, even after action reporting, if you will, like after a, a situation occurs, really just sitting down and saying objectively, let me look at every part that I touched or influenced in this, knowingly or unknowingly, and did that move the outcome further forward? Did that move people closer together? Or was there something that happened that prevented us? Even if it's a wildly successful thing that you've just accomplished, doing that after action reporting is, is a valuable element as well. Right. And, and my hunch is that actually, well, I, I say this to myself now, that I, if, if I were to sit down and do that exercise, um, a lot of the th- I would know quite a lot of the things that if I were to go to my peers and ask them, um, they would tell me, right? I, I would have a knowing of it if I would just allow myself to kind of admit to myself. So is, is it, has that been true? Do you find that you discover a lot just simply by doing the self-reflection? Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's, it, it does happen consistently where I'll get something that wasn't on my radar or list, but it's not as frequently. More frequently is any feedback I get lines up with what I did. Now we're all we're all our worst critics typically, right? We typically we we are much more critical of ourselves than others are. However, for whatever reason, when it comes down to actually putting a deliberate action in place to not just be critical of ourselves, but to to take the next step and take action. On it, that's the part where um, once you kind of make it public, once you're transparent with your team, you've put some accountability on yourself, haven't you? You you put yourself in a position where now you're opening up the, the channel of feedback. You have to do something with it. So it's as much an accountability mechanism as anything else. Mm. Yeah, and and in terms of 
soliciting feedback from others, it reminds me actually of an interview I, I watched with Elon Musk, who said um, whenever he was asking somebody about the product, he, he was not at all interested in their praise of the product. He just wanted to know, t- you know, tell me what the issue with this is. Tell, you know, don't flatter me here. Tell, tell me what the problems are. And uh, that kind of resonated. Having that courage to just say, no, no, I want, I want what I can. Yeah, not, not to be too uh, topical here, but it's quite a bit different than what some of the, I know, international media has shown of uh, our U.S. president's um, cabinet meetings where there's a, a, a praise session where every cabinet member goes around the table telling our president how amazing he is at his job. Um, if, if, you know, I, I've, I've never been in the type of leadership position that a commander in chief and president of a, a country is in. However, I could only imagine that one of the most important things that I could get would be feedback, candid and unfiltered about where I can continue to improve and make the jobs of those who are on my cabinet or, or on my team going out and doing the work uh, easier to do or, or remove barriers and obstacles for them. So, yeah, to, to, to your point about Elon, yeah, don't tell me everything that's great about it. Um, I appreciate that, but tell me everything that needs fixed. Mm-hmm. And that, that's a big part of that authenticity, right? That's a big part of that, that showing up and, and really being human part of it that, that makes such a huge difference when you're leading people. Because at the end of the day, outcomes are a result of the people involved much more than they are the processes to get there. Right, right. Um, and then the second thing you talked about, with, you then talked about value alignment and then this idea of, of messaging. Yeah, tell, tell me what you mean by my mess, messaging. So for messaging, this is about where and how frequently, how often you as a leader make a decision to talk about our culture, the behaviors that show up in our culture that, that are representative of it working properly and aligning properly and what our values are and opening up the dialogue. So messaging is, is as much about sharing your vision about what the, the future holds for the team, for the department, for the product or service we're selling, as much as it's getting the feedback back up to you as a leader about where things are working or not working within that vision. So if there's, it's, it, it's about keeping that part of the dialogue active and not just saying, here are the five things that we stand for as an organization. Here's the five things as a team that we are going to do to make sure that we work together, we collaborate, we innovate, and we deliver on time for our products or services. But instead saying, hey, here's the five things that, that are wildly important. And by the way, here's where it should show up in our work and here's what it looks like as a team. And whether it's a formal one-on-one interaction, whether it's a team meeting, or whether it is in an informal just dialogue or conversation, finding ways to tie back in into that same core value set and, and align everything we're, that you're doing on your team within that value set. An example, uh, you, you, you're being human, so you're having a, a nice Monday chat with, with your, uh, you know, a member on your team about some great thing they did the weekend. Maybe they, they went out on the lake over the weekend. And in honoring and listening to their story and appreciating what they're sharing with you, also connecting that into, hey, so, wow, it sounds like that that was a really cool thing that happened. Uh, whatever the, the stories that they shared with you, um, how, how do you think that that would show up or, or look within our team if we were able to do something like that together as a team on X project? And then get them to start to think about the way that they're 
living their life and how that applies into their work and how it applies into the value set you have. Eliminate this, this barrier of the work life, eliminate this barrier of I'm a different person when I'm here and just show up as you as a human, as a person and do what's necessary for the situation you're in. So that's, that's, that's a, a maybe a very basic, very simple example, but it's one that, that doesn't, the dot doesn't always connect. And oftentimes I found leaders will take that personal story and say, eh, come on, you're at work now, let's get to work. Um, or, hey, save it for the water cooler. And, and I, I believe that that's a tremendous opportunity to, to bring everything into the fold without being um, in any way disinterested in the story they're sharing, but instead having that be who they are, part of how they show up at work. Right, right. So I like that. And I, I, I suppose what I'm getting from what you're saying there is this isn't about the, the, the five values on the wall. This is about taking that story from a member of your team and, and using that, that real story and saying, well, how can we have more of this in our, in our team, in our workplace? Yeah, certainly that, that is one part of it. And I, I'm glad you said the wall. Uh, that is one thing that, that in my work, the first thing that, that I'll do when I'm hired to come in on an engagement with culture uh, and looking for ways to, to shift a culture to an environment that creates loyalty, that creates community, that helps the culture drive profits, I ask for the mission or values of the organization. And then I ask the next step within each department or channel, where do these show up in behaviors? and Generally, I've stumped the room at that point. Uh, and then my follow-up question is, um, as an employee, how do I know that these are the things? And the wall becomes oftentimes the number one reference. It's on the wall. It's on our, it's on our webpage. We attach it to every email. You know, it's, it's, it's some version of that piece of it. And so clearly, if that's only, the only place it lives, the messaging, the connecting it, the value alignment, is missing right so, yeah and you, you you said that was just one example but an important way to have this bring alive is is tapping into stories is opening the dialogue and i suppose just bring making it a conscious conversation it is yeah. uh, so bobby herrera he's the ceo of a company out of portland oregon in the u.s called uh populist group and he he has one of the most amazing stories about how it happens in fact i do write about it in my book uh but he, he's taken kind of that Disney approach where people are cast members and you re, re-approach that within his organization where people are climbers and they are all climbing as one to achieve the summit. And of course, in business, the summit is a moving target. So, uh, you, you know, you, you get close sometimes, right? Definitely. But it's always a moving target in business. Yet everybody still has that same idea where, uh, People are free to call each other out if somebody is not living the value. They know it that deeply and that intensely. And it is a part of every dialogue and conversation, whether formal or informal. And uh, it, 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 I mean, it's a perfect case study and example of it, this exact value. Mm. And yeah, and, and what was interesting, actually, before we came on air, you talked about the fact that you'd worked with teams and you'd never, never found it necessary to let, to let go of anybody. Because sometimes we can think about value alignment and it's certainly the most sort of macho aggressive version of that it's kind of fit in or f off right <laughs> you know? yeah and and you're saying actually there's is it right that in your experience you've 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 you found a way to align almost anybody yeah well yeah that's i did say that didn't i um so <laughs> <laughs> 
It, it's true. Uh, in the, the multitude of teams that I've led, I've never taken over a team that had chronic underperformance and came in and let people go. Uh, with the exception of anyone who was violating any type of laws or integrity uh, issues. Th- that would be the only exception. Outside of that, it's it's been about kind of one of the, the, the other pieces there. When I talk about value alignment, and then I also talked about this idea of celebrating and bringing together intellectual and uh, diversity and bringing everybody's diversity out as a strength. So, you know, many of my teams, uh, like many of your listeners' teams, are probably spread across many areas and that you're not dealing with, with and interacting with your leaders of those teams necessarily in your face every day, um, which also means that they're not necessarily working with each other and it can become a bit transactional when they do. So how to, for me, it was about how to remove transactional interaction between those leaders on my team who, who looked after people who were remote and didn't work with each other regularly and start to make them uh, part of a stronger unit, a stronger bond together and let them know that they weren't on an island, but they were able to accomplish these things together. So that came with then messaging and going through our values that came with then making sure that they each knew. And, and I would tee up some questions that they could ask each other to learn about each other that they may not uh, different things that brought the diversity of each person as a strength to others. So that, that, that was probably the most critical piece for me outside of then my role of championing people. And so part of it, like I mentioned, was sharing with one uh, team leader about, you know, s- some little piece or some little small background that somebody else had that they should learn from and then connecting them together. That's part of championing it. But then the other piece is celebrating every single thing that they're doing and giving them the voice to go out and teach others to do it themselves that was my role in it. And that, that's how I took regularly teams who had some chronic underperformance and helped them be able to thrive as a result. Not that I had the answers for them, but I had the, the process and connections to bring them together to do it themselves. Yeah. And that's really consistent with the, certainly the, the research that I've read on collective intelligence. I don't know if you're mm-hmm. aware of that research, but where the, the major factors in the, the level of context collective intelligence of a group is you know the, the turn taking amongst the team which of course relies on trust um and also the diversity the intellectual diversity of the group matters right if, if you get if you get just ceos working together and then ceos and their executive assistants working together the ceos and the executive assistants outperform the ceo so the groups of ceos so so there's it seems to me that what you're talking about is borne out at least by some some of the science Oh yeah, there's no doubt about it. And you know, I, I don't want I don't want anybody listening to to feel like oh this this guy's beating his drum. He's done everything right. You know, I, as I already mentioned, I I failed miserably early on and started becoming a student of successful brands, successful leaders, uh, the science behind connecting the head and the heart or the emotion of people. Um, so. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily say human behavior, but how behavior is predictive of outcomes, certainly. And much of what I write about in the book is all centered in that uh, exact science. Right. Um, so tell us a little bit about your, your, your process now when you go in and you've got kind of an impressive roster of clients on your website now as, um, as chief belonging architect. You know, how does that work? You, you, 
pitch up and say, hey, I'm, I'm going to bring more belonging to your workplace? Or you know, how, do, how do those conversations go? Yeah, so, so ultimately, the, the conversation starts with solving a, a culture performance problem, right? That's, that's the need that starts. And again, inevitably, my first questions uh, that I already shared with you are the ones that really get us going down the path of where in the culture we see the issues. Um, Misalignment values is one, lack of trust in leaders or lack of trust in the direction of the organization uh, tends to be another. So it starts then with going and surveying some employees. If the executive vision of what should be happening and the reality of what's happening don't align, um, it's not blaming one or the other side for it, but certainly uh, starting to look further. And um, my training, my work, and my experience leads me down the path of how we interact as people with each other in the environment. Every once in a while, the system is broken, but more often, the way that we're interacting with each other as people uh, has violated or broken trust with someone else or organizationally on a bigger level. And so it's, it's a natural progression to start to realize what the problem is. Now, to your question, do I say, hey, belonging is missing in your organization. I've just found that, that answer. Uh, no, uh, that's not a KPI. It's not on anybody's quarterly review at all, um, how much belonging they have within their team. And candidly, it becomes one of the things that 41% of managers say they just don't have time for, which is to build the culture of their team. And so that's where then I, I start to work on how the culture defines the outcome and where profits are driven from. And again, inherently, we all understand and know that the people in our organization are the people who are delivering the outcomes for us. Uh, yet for some reason, we still like to have organizational culture that focuses on outcomes and process exclusively with a little bit of the people stuff built in. Uh, and it's, to, you know, team builders and things like that are great but they are not the answer. Uh, they are not the answer in and of themselves. So it, again, to your question, it starts with, there's a problem, typically with an outcome, sometimes with a, a process. And how, how do we address that and fix that? So my questions lead us to the fact that we often have teams that need to feel a deeper sense of trust, connection, and value alignment with their organization to be able to produce. We hired them for a reason. They're a good employee. They're not producing. Where's the gap? And, it's, and, and the organizations I work with are willing to and understand uh, that there is, without any question, a need to make sure that the people have the right process first and, and the right systems and, and environment first. If, if, you're, if that's not something that you're prepared to admit, we, we probably aren't working together. Right. And when you say pe the people have the right process and, and environment or, or technology in technology it's it's in terms of how they interact with each other is that what you're saying yeah yeah how they interact with each other so you know te technology is an example slack or other similar uh workplace apps for communication have taken over from email which then you know prior took over from all the face-to-face -face meetings and so how how are we using those systems and are we rewarding or incentivizing the right thing i work with organizations who who pay attention to how often their employees are engaging in Slack and they have reporting on their employee participation in Slack. I would tell you, you're measuring the wrong thing. You're going to get people to just check the box and do things to show up high in a report and stay off of your radar. Um, meanwhile, 
we could measure something like, you know, what does engagement look like? Um, and we don't measure that engagement through just purely the online or the technology involvement in it. Um, we can we can communicate faster. We can communicate more frequently. But does that mean we're communicating better? And sometimes I think organizations slip in tools like this to make things faster and more frequent without thinking about better outcomes, which is ultimately the result we're trying to achieve, period, by introducing any type of new technology or system or process in. Are we making outcomes better? Are we making things simpler for our team to be able to achieve their outcomes and work together to do it? The answer is yes and no, oftentimes, with uh, technology like that. Right, and I can I can see that w- why some of the things you mentioned there are not the things to measure. But um, if, if I'm listening to this and I'm looking at my organization and I've got the question in my head, well, how much belonging is here? What what are the things that you one would tend to observe in an environment where there is a lot of belonging um, versus what one might observe where there isn't? What, what would people? What are the indicators people should be aware of? Sure. So if this, if this is interesting to you and now you're listening to this and saying, how am I going to run a basic litmus test? Right. That's what you're asking. Mm. So look at your organization and first ask yourself this question. What are our organization's values that we espouse and, and state? And can I define as a leader where in my organization, those would show up as behaviors within every role or every team. So for example, you have a project manager and that project manager has six people that they work with and uh, four other project managers that they have to interface with over the course of their project. So they have two facets I'd really be looking for, actually three facets I'd really be looking for what those behaviors would look like. And that is how they're measuring their work product, not just the deadline, but how else are we measuring the work product? So that's collaboration with others, timeliness and responsiveness to others. Um, How are they interacting, communicating with their team? Are they side by side spending time with their team solving solutions, uh, solving problems and giving real solutions? Or are they spending time dictating to people that they have to work longer hours to be able to, to achieve the deadline? How are they interacting with the other stakeholders or senior leaders? Right, So you're looking for three places, maybe for that person, that they have their most common interactions that would show up with championing others. So I'm, I'm looking for a behavior that shows that this person is championing people on their team. They're not taking credit for everything that's happening on their team. Uh, when we talk about taking online connections offline or building that sense of community, I don't mean going out to the pub with all of your team after work and having, having a bunch of beers. I don't know if that's always uh, advised in, in organizations as a leader. However, the, the right answer might be, what are they doing to, to bring people closer together so they're supporting each other on the team? So I'm looking for those specific behaviors. Uh, and again, maybe, maybe you're running a marketing department. These things become a similar process. What are our stated values? Where do those show up as behaviors? And then can I go see them in action? That's the first and most important thing. And I think going any further than that at this point, um, for most people, is probably a little bit advanced. Those two questions there, what are the values and where do they show up as behaviors, for most organizations and most leaders, creates a lot of homework. Right Right off the bat, it does. It creates a lot of homework because the, the reality is, because it's not on a quarterly review or KPI sheet, it, it simply isn't an activity that 
we spend a lot of time doing. And if as a senior leader, this was a quarterly activity that you yourself undertook, didn't delegate to somebody else uh, in your organization, but you yourself undertook, you would be pleasantly surprised with the information that you gather each quarter uh, you know, successfully uh, or successively. You would find that, that you're starting to, assuming you take action on these things, that you're starting to see in the course of two quarters a monumental shift in the culture of your organization because for you as the leader, taking the action, demonstrating it, spending the time with your teams on it, not dictating it, but following those guidelines that I shared uh, on those five characteristics, uh, your team will respond in kind. And, and you will see that happen. So that, that's ultimately the first and most important step. And of course, bring in somebody who maybe can offer an objective um, outside view if, as well. If you're having a hard time seeing what those, uh, what those challenges might be or, or defining what those are, is to bring in somebody who has a fresh perspective and doesn't look at your same four walls or, or faces every day. Right, right. So it sounds to me like simply starting the journey of that inquiry in itself is going to unlock a, a lot of change or a lot of benefit in the organization. So those, those two questions are, are a jumping off point that most are not prepared. Now, by the way, if you're listening and you, you're like, hey, I'm good. I, I, I know what our values are. I know where they show up as behaviors. I'm already this step ahead. Uh, then, then the next step is really looking at what are the voices that your team leaders have, that, that the people in your organization have to help shift whatever priorities need to happen in your culture to grow it to that next level. Um, we may have a great vision and, 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 and values. We may show up and live it, but like anything else in business, it has to evolve over time to continue to be successful. Bobby Herrera, who I mentioned at Populous Group, they've had three ver- versions of their culture in a, a 15 year, 20 year uh, organization. And Three different versions of it, and it's all been based on the feedback that others have championed up to uh, senior leaders. So that would be the next step is where those voices were helping you shift what your culture is going to look like as you stay ahead of all of your competitors who just aren't there yet. Right. And this is a, um, yeah, this is, this is quite a different take on, on what a lot of people think of value change or, or culture change, should I say, you know, people start to think about um, structures and role definitions and 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 you're going no right back to basics values behaviors observing getting yes. into dialogue and then and then thinking about what's the next sort of set of behaviors that's going to take us to the next level yeah you, there is a, a ton of science behind what you just mentioned with with, with culture change and a, a lot of value in it but when we talk about creating this idea of belongingness that is um, outside of much of the scope of how many of those processes work. But certainly, you know, one of the five characteristics of creating that belonging factor is um, the value alignment and making sure that you have roles and responsibilities or behaviors clearly defined. So s- certainly structure is a part of it. This is not, you know, Wild West, Whittly Nilly, uh, just having a lot of dialogue and feeling kumbaya about ourselves. This is definitely about making sure that the structure of this is led from the top down, but supported from the organization inside out. Um, because it, it ultimately, it's something that a layperson or a customer should be able to get a feeling or a sense of they're working with somebody who's just in a different category, at, at a different level. 
Uh, and that's what the best brands are able to do, even if they don't, they, they don't brand themselves as this, this great feel-good company. You should get a sense of it just in how you interact with people. It should uh, and does feel different when you get it right. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. Of course, the structure and roles that, you know, that, that does have importance and people, I think there is a human need for people to understand, or at least a lot of people to understand where, where they fit into the bigger picture and, and what's expected of them. But I suppose what strikes me is whenever I speak to clients and out there, when culture change almost becomes synonymous with, with structure change, right? And, and it's very often the first thing that people think about is, okay, let's get the org chart out. Um, and, and, and I think you're providing a different perspective yeah. here on the starting point. Yeah, I, I, again, I believe that, that uh, often you can change a culture with existing teams to deliver exceptional outcomes and not have to reorg. Now, granted, there are important times where reorging, particularly senior level, might be necessary to give somebody a, a different scope of business unit um, to kind of refresh with. Um, but throughout uh, mid-level management, yeah, it, it, that's one where I, I really do believe that if you've cast the right people to begin with, you're, you're going to achieve great things with taking this very simple. It's not easy. I don't want to conflate the two, uh, but very simple approach because at the end of the day, we're people dealing with people and it's not that complex. It's not that complicated when you're doing the right thing for people to deliver the outcomes. Right, right. Okay. Um, is, is, I mean, I'm, just, I'm just thinking, are there any other pertinent questions that you get when you take this out to people uh, that, that it's worth you providing a brief answer to for people who've got interested in this topic here? Yeah, so I, I would just t- touch on the topic of the intellectual diversity piece. Uh, that's one that, that I didn't think was as um, controversial as maybe it's turned out to be. Uh, there, there's a, a sense that exists that uh, intellectual diversity does not necessarily represent the full diversity that many organizations are looking for to bring people from uh, different socioeconomic, racial, gender, et cetera, backgrounds in. And I, I would position it this way. Intellectual diversity that I talk about building is a representation of people who come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, different countries, different genders. They have different lived experiences. And so you're looking to hire and bring on to your organization the right people who have diversity that adds to your culture and is a culture add, not a culture fit. You're not trying to fit anybody into the existing culture because you're always trying to grow and improve what your culture can deliver and what outcomes you can achieve as a result. So uh, the reason I say intellectual diversity is there, there is a phenomenon where organizations do hire people based on gender, skin color, etc., cetera, uh, to fulfill what they call a diversity uh, agenda. And that is not necessarily helping uh, just in that particular measure bring a value add. And so that's why I specify intellectual diversity. The backgrounds that people have, the lived experiences they have, create a tremendous asset for your organization if once you bring them on, you have the ability to celebrate those, bring those out as advantages and benefits when you're in as opposed to just things that make people different from each other. It's those differences that, that really win. That's the, the idea behind diversity and ultimately inclusion, right? So, um, so I, I, would, I would say that that's probably the one area where I still get some questions about why did you choose intellectual diversity versus saying just D&I? 
And it, it's because of the resulting outcomes that we're all striving to achieve. Um, and if your outcome is solely about what people can see when they look on your website at your C-suite, I, I, I'm going to argue that you're doing it wrong. Um, but certainly you could achieve an outcome by just having different looking people make up your C-suite. Um, but that's not the, the type of diversity that I believe helps foster and create the winning team. Yeah, I can see that. So the, so the, those, the, those other lenses on diversity emerges outcomes if you shoot for, for uh, intellectual diversity, or at least are likely to. Likely to, sure. Yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Okay. Well, this has been uh, an illuminating conversation for me. Uh, I hope it, it provides some uh, some new perspectives for our listeners. Um, and so the book is is belonging. Oh, tell us, tell us the book where they can get it. And uh, yeah, sure. When it's coming. In. Uh, so the book, belonging, belong. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna have to do some edit. The book, belonging factor: how great brands and great leaders inspire loyalty, build community, and grow profits. Long mouthful there, but it does encompass those things. Um, it really dives into the practical application of those five characteristics I talked about. It is pre-sale now, September 9. Let's see, September 9 officially launches. It's available on Amazon worldwide. Uh, and we're working on some more international rights for bookstores. So you should be able to pick it up in local bookstores. But go to Amazon. You'll find it there. And you can also visit book.belongingfactor.com. There's amazing digital toolkit of free tools available to help take the principles in the book and put them into action in your organization. Because ultimately for me, my mission is to help unlock and develop the potential in others to achieve whatever their wildest dreams and goals are. So the toolkit is really the companion that's free for everybody to take the principles and put them in action, no matter the size or challenge you have in your organization. Awesome. And then, and physically, right, if you're in the U.S., that you've got a, a, an event. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. So if you're, if you're here in the U.S. and you'd like to come, we have big launch party happening. It's in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and that is September 19th. So you can visit book.belongingfactor.com and get the additional information if you'd like to attend that free event, open to the public. Would love to see as many people there as possible and share all of the wonderful messages behind belonging but also to learn from everybody who's there fantastic all right and we'll put all the links for that in the in the show description hey so one more thing one more thing uh i i would like to gift your listeners the opportunity to get a free uh signed autographed copy of my book in fact I, i'd like to give away two of them so if if you're listening and you go to beinghuman.belongingfactor.com and I'm sure you can put this in the, the show notes, yeah? We'll, yeah? Put it, we'll put it in the notes, yeah. Uh, uh, just pop in your email address and, and name. We'll pick two random uh, entrants, and I will sign this thing and send it off to you and give you the opportunity to enjoy and, and hopefully share the belonging factor. Brilliant. Okay, that's so generous. Thank you. Um, yeah, and we'll, we'll definitely put that link in the notes. All right. Thanks, Devin. Take All care. right. Cheers. See you. Bye. The Being Human podcast was brought to you by First Human. For more on First Human's human-focused coaching and leadership programs, head to firsthuman.com.